Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and on the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, your free travel writing guidebook, and much more at alloverthepodcast.com. Today's episode brings us to a highway in the Midwest where Alexandra Fuller speaks with us about challenging dominant narratives and about her experience as guest editor for the Best American Travel Writing 2019. Alexandra is an award-winning writer whose books include Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness, and Scribbling the Cat. She's written for publications like The New Yorker, National Geographic, and Granta, just to name a few. So now, here is Alexandra Fuller. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you are the guest editor for the Best American Travel Writing 2019. It's a collection of essays, all of which were published in the previous year. The series is now in its 20th year, I believe, and has featured guest editors uh, like Anthony Bourdain and Bill Bryson and Francis Mays. So uh, now you're uh, being involved in this, and I was just wondering if you could uh, explain what the process was like selecting the essays and working with the series editor, Jason Wilson. It was honestly one of the most sort of luxurious assignments I've ever had because the um, it was 50 essays, and I had to sort of whittle it down quite, which was difficult to do um, from that. And the process for me really was about to begin with, trying just reading them all, reading them all and seeing what themes emerged. Um, but the theme that struck me, and of course it seems obvious in any kind of retrospect, was this idea that we have reached um, a, a global stage of, you know, the anthropocene and hypernationalism. Um, you know, borders have become prickly. It's a, it was an exciting time to do it in a way. Um, if, if that's the correct word, or, or, or almost disturbing mm. to see the same themes crop up with writers, whether they were going to Chernobyl or um, on the on the border between uh, Mexico and the United States, um, you know, the tundra of Siberia, over and over again, these themes of ecological collapse um, and political turmoil. But the thing that struck me was the humanity of the writers. And of course, for me being a writer and also being Zimbabwean and, you know, therefore sort of steeped, I think, in what it means to have a, a voice and to use it, mm-hmm. um, the courage of a lot of these journalists. And I had, I mean, my prejudice is that American journalists don't need the kind of courage that you would have to have as a Ukrainian journalist, say, or a Nigerian journalist or a Zimbabwean journalist. But that's not true once you begin to push, you know, the boundaries of dominant narratives wherever you are. Mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately was what the selection process for me was about, was 
was the writer challenging a dominant narrative, challenging him, her, or themselves, and challenging the reader in those same ways, and taking you somewhere beyond just the geography, but taking you somewhere, you know, as um, Charles Wright said, the only, you know, the, the journey to the interior is all that matters. And I think there's really something in that too. Right. Did you articulate this idea, um, I guess, before or as you're reviewing the essays and articles, or is was this something that that came to you during the process? How did that work? That's a good question. No, I, I mean, listen, I think you come to any work with yourself inside the work. You know, you can't, I, I always am very suspicious of, of particularly reporters that they, they're managing to be completely impartial. I just don't think that's mm-hmm. realistic. We're human and we're, um, you know, we're human and we're, we're, we want to congregate. We long for community. And yet I think that as writers, you always must court eviction from whatever tribe would have you. But this idea that I'm coming to the work sort of as a blank slate myself, um, I I don't think is true. But I do think what ends up happening is that you come to the work, you know, I come to the work with my own prejudices and assumptions and so on. Mm -hmm. And then I think have to be very careful to make sure that, that uh, to allow myself to be surprised, changed, schooled, <laughs> distressed, mm-hmm. awoken by whatever I'm reading. Mm-hmm. So what out of these essays, what did surprise you? <laughs> Do you know, to be honest with you, the one that really, well, there were a number that blew me away. But the one, there were a couple that, um, the one where I ended up just sort of feeling particularly surprised was a travel story. A young uh, female writer goes to Nashville, Tennessee to report on the rise of bachelorette parties in Nashville. That's <laughs> something I would ordinarily not be interested in. But the author challenges white female privilege challenges the trope of what it is to have a bridal shower, what that means, what that says of our culture. And, you know, it's so that you, one thinks, particularly as a woman, that we've got beyond, we ourselves as women have grown beyond the stereotypes. And so to, to be reading about women written by a young woman who is, I think, being brave about sort of taking on this rather frightening sacred cow and what has happened to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And this idea, this is what really surprised me in that story, was this idea that gentrification is of itself a kind of violence against a place. And I just love it when I think that is going to be lodged in my mind forever in those stark terms, not in a sort of waffly because of all these reasons, just this is it. And I think that is the other thing about so many of these essays. I, When I was talking about it with the series editor, we were talking about how back in 20 years ago when the the started that was an embarrassment of essays to wade through. There were almost too many. And now with the decline of, with offline uh, magazines um, and the proliferation of online, what I think is, is being allowed is um, a divergence from the dominant narrative um, because of, because more and more is getting published online. And there's, I think less mm-hmm. sort of editorial pressure to supply something that is, you know, quote unquote, the language of a magazine. Um, and I think that, that for me, again, was a, 
I don't didn't come consciously with that idea. Um, and I am such a Luddite. I mean, I barely, I don't have television. I don't do any social media. Um, but it really sort of woke me up to how the way on, online publishing is expanding the voice um, and expanding mm-hmm. who gets to be part of the voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it seems like, you know, what what draws you to many of these essays are the kind of the political, the ecological, these these, uh, you know, very important questions of the day. I was <laughs> doing something that I shouldn't have been doing, but I was like going back and reading the online reviews of all of the volumes of, of this uh, book in the past decade. And it, just reading the negative comments, it seems that all of the guests, every single one of the guest editors uh, have been charged with being either too political or too historical, uh, <laughs> letting their uh, like ideological viewpoints infect whatever the re- reviewer thinks is like a more pure form of travel writing or whatever. So, <laughs> I mean, can a guest editor not... I'm so glad I didn't read those reviews. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you didn't have too many. It was Your, your book is still pretty new, but... <laughs> yeah, so can, can a guest editor, like, uh, you touched on this already, but can a guest editor not help but influence or shape an overall volume? And, and secondly, like, why do so many people expect travel writing to be always, like, lighthearted or uplifting and political? <laughs> right. Those are really good questions. So, I mean, I think, first of all, and I love that we're having this conversation. No, that's why you're the guest editor. Let's bring this flavor here. This person who has this particular view of the world. You know, if you come to the work out of a certain tradition, of course, that is going to be you know, your bias. Um, and I think, I think that I address it, um, in the, in my, um, introductory essay that, and I certainly it's something I rail against that, you know, there is sort of this vacuous vacationing sort of beach read, for example, Mm -hmm. but that, but that we can no longer look at really anything we in my opinion, again, and of course this is the bias I bring to the work, but in my opinion, we can no longer fly somewhere, land there, and literally take a vacation from our minds because climate change and um, political upheaval and um, you know wildlife migration, human migration, um, waterways, all of these things don't know borders. And we are seeing more and more and more that, that you know, climate change is affecting all of us. Humanity is moving and mass is not yet seen before in our, ever. And that, that changes everything. And to act as if there is a place that you can go to in the world that exists in a bubble in 2019 or 2018 would be to me to eliminate you from the voice of travel because mm-hmm. travel was never supposed to be easy. I mean, back in the day when travelers sort of first started to travel for the sake of travel, it was an ordeal and you expected to be changed by the experience, challenged by it. You would have to go and learn another language. You couldn't just go and speak English louder and more aggressively and hope <laughs> to get by. And, you know, now to sort of go and fly somewhere and expect your comforts not to be interrupted or your um, way of thinking not to be profoundly disturbed and shaken up 
what's the point? Mm-hmm. Then I think, yes, yeah, stay home and watch television. Don't bother getting on a plane and making the planet even warmer for, to, you know, for the sake of taking a vacation from your own mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love how you put that, a, a beach read. I think uh, maybe you should contact Jason and, and come up with the best American vacation writing anthology. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. What a great idea, because that is the difference. And then people aren't disappointed because there is a difference between vacation and travel. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a difference between escapism, um, you know, which is by definition something like a beach read, which I think there's a place for. I've certainly, I mean, a hundred years ago, beach reads were something I wouldn't have excluded from my life. Um, But I think that, that, you know, there is a, a... escapism and then there's means of escape and means of escape can offer you the idea that Chernobyl exists and the means of escaping that particular horror at least for me in that particular essay was the part of it where the author talks about the people who went into Chernobyl Mm. and and risked their lives knowing what was going to happen to them to put an end to that monumental disaster um, and that there is such a thing now as the sort of disaster tourism, that catastrophic tourism to places where there's been these kinds of horrific events um, has, you know, has become weirdly part of um, the human experience. And I, and I think that that takes a kind of um, a responsible, nuanced interpretation uh, mm. you know, to write about travel writing and say, and underlying this, um, is this, you know, human disaster. So, uh, at what point does then, uh, writing about disaster or writing in general, right? At what point does that become part of the travel writing genre, if we can call it that? What, what, at what point does literature become a work of, of travel literature? Um, you know. Oh, good question. Uh-huh. Sorry, I, I was just... The gonna... moment you put... No, no, I think that's a good question. I, I think it's when you... Um, it's a mind shift, right? So travel writing, it, it, in, in my mind, should have an arc in which the traveler, um, either the traveler... Uh, he, he, him, her, or themselves is changed by the experience, um, or the reader is. Someone is changed by the experience of going on that journey, and um, but usually the change happens because the, it's happening um, to the writer, and and through that we vicariously travel through them. And I think it is possible to do travel writing and never leave your armchair as long as you're honest about it. I'm not leaving my armchair, but <laughs> I'm going to take a journey to the interior. And I certainly wouldn't exclude um, that piece of writing from, you know, from consideration. I think for most people, though, they expect you to be, quote unquote, in an exotic location. Mm-hmm. But again, that depends on what your definition of what exotic is. And I love Jason Wilson's essay on um, the properties of our current president, Donald Trump. And the Trump, he, he, uh, the essay is uh, Jason Wilson going to Trump properties and, and sort of writing about that experience. And some of them are exotic. They're in Scotland. Um, and some of them aren't. They're domestic. Um, and th- but this idea that the exoticism comes 
from putting yourself in play and that the writer goes somewhere that the reader may not ever even consider going mm-hmm. and, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, exotic in the way that we ordinarily think of it at all, but it can be mind exotic. Mm-hmm. Do you consider your your memoirs uh, part of this? <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say so. Because, um, hmm. Well, I wouldn't say so, but go ahead. There's, there's a you know, strong sense of place, and I guess depending on where you're reading it, right, a, a travel component in, in there. Mm. Um, you know, there is this kind of narrative arc uh, in those in those stories. Well, so the thing that right, and I for me the it I would say the reason why it wasn't travel writing is that it was home for me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, I mean there is the strange idea because I was raised in Zimbabwe, um, and I am I'm Caucasian. Uh, people will say things to me like, "Where did you come from?" Like, well, but where did you? originally come from in a way that they wouldn't, for example, say to white settlers in the U.S., even though it's (laughs) a parallel and legitimate question. And so I think that is just, again, this way in which if you're the dominant narrative and you are very used to the dominant narrative, you experience everything else as quote-unquote other and exotic and you as um, the default. And uh, in in this um, collection of essays, there are a fair number of stories that are written from the perspective of the U.S. um, and and so may may not feel exotic, say, if you live in Nashville and read the story on the bachelorette parties or if you're from the South and read the story um, of the young woman that, you know, reenacts the walk from um, Selma to Montgomery Mm -hmm. um, of... Dr. King, that those that if you lived there, that experience may not feel exotic, but that for a reader, yes, it's other. But I don't think that necessarily is what makes a travel writing, you know, in this instance. I think what makes a travel writing is that, you know, the protagonist, him, her, or themselves is sort of putting on their shoes, you know, putting, getting into a mode of transport and leaving home in some way, whether that's literal, figurative, you know, metaphorical, whereas my memoirs, I'm never leaving home. This is home. I'm entrenched in it. There is no leaving the space that we're in. And um, that's part of what makes the story the story that it is, which is the story of white settlers, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of clinging on through, through what we, you know, decided to cling on through and um, and what that did to particularly the children in the family, which would be, you know, me writing about it as an adult. Um, so I think that that is the difference. And I really, in a way, with my memoirs, try to normalize the other. And so I refuse to translate into English, for example, um, you know, the slang or the vernacular, because I w- would love to start washing out of the sort of universal linen, this idea that English is the default language and that, you know, the default experience is somehow something that you would see about a middle-class family on American television. You know, that sort of homogenous default culture mm-hmm. is something I'm constantly trying to wear away at and also bring, you know, 
to my work, but also the, the collection, the idea that that's not the default, that is your default, maybe, or it's a default, um, but it's not the default. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean you all personally, I just mean, you know, you generically. Right, right. You know, I was going to ask you uh, about um, what your thoughts are, you know, in, in terms of being, you know, today's climate about being extra careful and tiptoeing around, mm-hmm. you know, these difficult conversations. Um, and it doesn't see, doesn't seem like you, uh, you, you do uh, tiptoe uh, that much around. No. Um, but no. what are your thoughts, I guess, on this kind of groundswell of political correctness that has been, um, depending on how you look at it, plaguing, you know, society for the last decade or so? Do you think that's a challenge in in in, ter- in terms of conveying uh, things honestly, honestly and accurately, or is there um, a value in that? Uh, both, and I think it calls upon those of us who are having these public conversations to have and to you know to have done some work and to be doing the hard work of deconstructing ourselves incessantly. Um, for me, I am grateful for how obviously I need to deconstruct myself from the narrative because, um, I, I think because of where I came from, it was always very, very obvious. Um, and I think for other people that's, it, it, it can be less obvious because the dominant narrative is so sort of cheered along. I do think that the, uh, I, I think it is critical that if you're a writer, you do one of two things. You're very, very careful. You one must become, and I not to say I haven't been guilty of this. I've been horribly guilty of it, but that you must look at whatever story you're reporting in context, the whole context, including, you know, geographical context, including ways in which groups have been. Um, exhaustively and and tiringly excluded from the narrative for so long. Mm. Um, And yet at the same time, not be bullied into silence by uh, a fear that you're going to say the wrong thing. But I think if you're fearful you're going to say the wrong thing, it's probably a sign (laughs) that you should shut up (laughs) for a little bit and sit with that Mm. and, and see if your fear is realized or not. Because I think once you are able to deconstruct your own, um, in, in my case, my own white privilege, my own white supremacy, my own white dominance, my own white narrative. And again, you know, because I was raised by Rhodesians, it's a very big target to sort of swipe out of the way. But it hasn't been a big, it has been a very difficult um, uh, sort of ongoing ego deconstruction because racism is a deeply, deeply learned and deeply, deeply ingrained and deeply, deeply sort of washed into the fabric of who who we are um, as white settlers and I think widely overlooked. And so I think that there is, a, a, it's only, for me, it's only, uh, it is predictable, but it's also, it's just, of course, there's going to be um, a strong backlash against, you know, centuries of microaggressions and macroaggressions against people of color and women Mm and um, people of different sexuality and and religions and so on. And so, yes, I think we are in a moment where everyone's being uh, 
uh, under a, a bit of a spotlight. And it is, uh, I, what I always, I mean, two things I say to myself, writers should court eviction from their own tribe and then from any tribe that would try and sort of have them, because I think otherwise you get very cautious not to upset anyone and you're, quote-unquote tribe, but what, however you define that, whether it's your political affiliation or your, you know, whatever it is. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, I don't think there's room for sort of shock for the, for the sake of it, the way that we're yelling at one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, you know, while we're in this plague or whatever you want to call it, a political correctness, we're in a much worse plague of overt racism from our leaders mm. um, and our elected officials in a way that is, is far more horrific than anything, some overcorrection. Mm. I mean, I would love it if, for example, the president of these United States wondered if perhaps he, need, he should be a bit fearful about opening his mouth and stayed silent and really thought about some of the things he said, because the damage that that does um, to the health and well-being of community, of individuals. I mean, it is. It's. It. Can you imagine that your president speaking about you in these ways? It's going mm-hmm. to be a disintegrating and really uh, um, alienating experience. And I. So for me, I would. If we're going to go one way or the other, I think that truth is absolutely a kind of spoken truth is very critical but you no one owns the truth and i think you have to be very aware that you're not not just sailing in on a dominant narrative or a kind of misguided political correctness that you don't have any idea what you're doing and in the meantime if you have to veer onto one side or the other um yeah yeah i think it's a messy time i think Mm -hmm. that this is it's requiring all of us to dig deep or deeper it's very well put. The approaches that that we talk about, especially when we are experiencing other um, other cultures, you know, holding a mirror to yourself and being honest with yourself and the yeah. context from which you come. Like, for, for instance, a Frenchman going to Algeria will, by default, have to approach you know that country and those people in a different way from, say, an American going there. And uh, one of the pieces about the American going to Guantanamo Bay. You know, approaches mm-hmm. Cuba in a very, very different uh, light than, Correct. say, a Colombian. And I think, uh, yes, I guess or a Canadian, or a Canadian, yes. right? And so, I, I think yes. your point is well received that uh, we need to be honest with our backgrounds and our own contexts and our own privileges in order to sweep away the bias that we don't know we have. Well, and I also think that it is something you do within yourself. And so when people tell me that they're deconstructing their ego or their, their whiteness or that they're not racist, that's a clue that I have that they've, been, that they've either are on the, doing their work or not, is whether they admit that what part of what they've had to go through is stages of, you know, I mean, there are stages of development and one of them is this kind of grief that, you've been part of a, that you, maybe not you yourself, mm-hmm. although in my case, it is me myself, um, because I was raised in this particular way, but that you come from people for whom this was, uh, uh, you know, a way of being. And we now know that we carry inherited, um, trauma, uh, in our bodies. I mean, this is so well documented, we don't need to go into it here, but Mm -hmm. it is something I certainly noticed going on to um, 
uh, you know, Indian reservations in the U.S. and seeing historical trauma in communities. I, the, one, the place that I'm most familiar with is the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in, in South Dakota, um, you know, and I think that if you, if you, I mean, this holds true wherever you go. If you go onto an Indian reservation as a white settler in America, one goes very differently than I think if you were, say, German coming to an Indian reservation. That You're quite right. Or Palestinian coming to an Indian reservation in the U.S. And so, um, and, and, and I think this is global. So, for example, I think if you're English, this happens to you if you go to Northern Ireland and have to confront that long troubled history mm-hmm. between the Irish and the English. Mm-hmm. You had uh, mentioned before we got on the call that you were just in the Des Moines uh, Art Center to see an exhibit yes. on the Monument Valley. Yes. I haven't seen yes. this, um, but it, is is this part of what you're talking about? Is it trying to kind of scratch away uh, or trying to expose the kind of misrepresentations of the Native Americans? Um, and what, what, what did you see there? Yes, yes. It, it is the most fantastic, fantastic exhibition. I, I recommend people drive to Des Moines, Iowa to see it. <laughs> it's it is truly, uh, it's, it's not radical. It's probably overdue, but it was so powerful and moving. And it turned on its head. I mean, there were moving expeditions. There was film. There's uh, quilts. There's um, art. But the, the wit and the ferocity of the artists in deconstructing dominant white narrative. And one of the most moving and beautiful things in the expedition is um, a black and white film done in just this haunting, gauzy light of black cowboys, the black cowboy culture of Oklahoma, Mm. Um, and how incredibly moving it was to see something that we're not ordinarily exposed to, that I don't know why isn't part of the dominant narrative. I don't know why it's taken me 20, you know, some years of living in the States to know that this robust culture exists in Oklahoma, um, that there's a black rodeo, that there's, you know, the, the black rodeo queen. And I live in Wyoming where all that trope exists, but you don't ever see a person of color existing. And so, and Monument Valley also, the exhibition turned on its head. The narrative of what it means to be free, for example, and the wittiest and most disturbing way in which that was expressed was a a very haunting video of of loosing wild animals in a hotel room and what what captivity means, who is captured, what freedom means, who is free, um, and what these walls mean, what have we done to the wild? I mean, all of that. Um, and again, just again and again and again, the, 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 the white narrative has been colluding. It's omitted so much. It's, being full of what I call white noise, you know, just you, you, you can't really hear what's wrong because you're deafened by the white noise. And of course, whitewash. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways in which we're taught to tell white lies, I don't think there's, you know, for me, um, again, because of the way I was raised, I'm super tuned into it. But, but I think that seeing it 
as a white settler in America as opposed to a white settler in Zimbabwe, where it's very much more pronounced, I felt like a weight off my chest that, oh, yes, this conversation is starting to happen in a robust mainstream way. And above all, what I loved was that they have land acknowledgments at this, at the Des Moines um, Art Center. There's a land acknowledgment in the program that stands alone. But land acknowledgement, too, apparently, I, I wasn't there for any of the uh, presentations. I wish I had been. A simple land acknowledgement. We are standing on the land, unseated of, and then name the territory that you're on as a white settler. It's not radical. Mm-hmm. It's common respect. But it felt to me like oh, we're getting there. You know, where this has started already in Australia, it's very common in Canada. It happens everywhere. But in the U.S., I think we're, we're much more fearful of sharing power and resources. And we're terrified, I think, as white settlers, that if we acknowledge we're standing on indigenous land, we might have to do something about honoring our treaty rights and honoring the promises that we made as white settlers or that our forefathers, our founding fathers, who we keep, you know, sort of talking about when they, if we're really going to represent that all men and women and are created equal, then we, that's work. I mean, that's not just something that shows up. It's not inevitable. And, you know, to bring it back to the essays that I selected, I think that that for me was also another absolute touchstone was that, that, that the narrator and, uh, you know, I think being, a, if you're an American writer or that, I mean, even if you're an immigrant to America, but you're writing from here, it's easy to swim along in the mainstream and not get out of your own, you know, story. Mm-hmm. Because you don't have to. There's not enough pressure. Whereas if you're, you know, writing from the perspective of a Zambian or a Ukrainian or, or whatever for mainstream media, of course, you have to contextualize. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I mean, I think for me, it's just that, are you putting this in context? And is your truth expedient or is it something that is in fact a stripping away? I love this idea that's a tiny bit debunked, but I hold on to it anyway, that apocalypse is from the Greek Greek word apocalypsis, which means a revelation or to reveal things as they really are. And I think we're there. I mean, I think we're at a, a point now where there is this stripping away, a kind of apocalypse. We're watching, you know, um, ecosystems um, collapse at an alarming rate. And we're, we're also watching um, human systems collapse. And so that from that apocalypse, I think, is arising a kind of stripped down new narrative or um, a, surpri- a narrative that we're surprised by. Mm-hmm. And these are the important uh, conversations and stories that that we need to hear, especially since we're being bombarded with, you know, just bullshit online. <laughs> you know. Yes. Well, exactly. Yes, and uh, which is my other, I think, really strong point, which is why I love that this is a book of essays. I don't do any social media, and I stay pretty well away from online content for for this reason. I, started to realize as a writer some time ago that what was needed in the in the writing world as much it was something equivalent to the slow food movement mm. to the slow narrative movement where we actually take the time to not react but to respond 
And there's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful line by Bertel Brecht, who wrote a fantastic book in the late 30s called A War Primer, um, and that was reprinted uh, in 20, early 2017 um, and uh, is well worth a look at. But he writes in the introductory essay, um, or it's written in the introductory essay, that he said that uh, it's, a, it's a battle for, for writers to keep up with politicians when it comes to making war and making uh, confusion and making uh, chaos because... Writing, unlike making war and creating chaos, requires deep thought. Mm. Mm. And that's what we need more of. Yes, a deepening of the conversation, not a, uh, an alarmed skidding along the surface. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and I, I, my concern when people sort of talk about political correctness and how it's gone crazy and what have you, is just... I mean, if you've experienced that, sit with the person whom you consider has gone crazy and ask why this is having such a strong effect on them. And I think you might find their reaction maybe is a little understated mm. compared to what they're feeling. You know, and I think we've been so used to watching. Um, we're, again, I think we're very accustomed to watching white male histrionics and saying, oh, that's what leadership looks like. But we see a young woman of color being very vocal, and we say she's angry. Go back home, right? Yeah. 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 Thank you for your honesty and, and, and your passion and your editing here, um, you know, trying to bring these stories uh, to more eyes. I think that's uh, definitely important and needed in, in, in the space. Absolutely. And, you know, we didn't talk about how beautiful the writing is in so many of these stories. Can I just say um, the, the, the essay about the cat? <laughs> yes. The, Morsi the Cat, the Egyptian essay, was one of my favorite. It was, uh, you know, using this, this kind of intimate, um, almost uh, kind of innocuous scene <laughs> yes. with, with a cat to to illustrate a, a larger kind of political uh, point. And it's just wonderfully, wonderfully written <laughs> essay. that Peter Hessler is one of my, yes, and he is one of my favorite authors. I was so happy. Um, what I did do during the selection was try and put my, you know, a, a, a cover over the names um, so that ah, I didn't mm. sort of go, oh, I know this person. But I was thrilled to see when I peeled off the name sticker Peter Hessler had written that, and I should have known. I've been a fan of his work for a long, long time. I agree with you. I absolutely loved that essay um, because, like you say, he took this quite sort of innocent, domestic, quirky thing that they named the cat after the Egyptian president, and then they got this outrageous cat. Um, and then he talks about, you know, the Arab Spring this way that I think we haven't read about before, and that makes it makes you realize that it's. The, the sort of touch and feel of it, what it would, would be like to to be there in that time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wonderfully, wonderful, wonderful essay. I was going to ask you if uh, you wanted to share your social <laughs> social media contacts, but you don't. <laughs> I don't have them. I do actually. My my, I think when she was twelve or thirteen, my youngest child um, 
got me a, a Instagram account and for a while, I think people were quite confused because it was a 13-year-old girl posing as me, <laughs> um, saying things like, Happy Thanksgiving, you all. Um, <laughs> think, so, no, I don't have any social media. And I think for good reason. I don't think that my brain can handle it. I, it seems to me that everyone around me is very fraught and very bullied and very exhausted by this constant upkeep. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really all I can do just to keep up with the podcasts that I love and the written word that I love and my own mind, which mm-hmm. I love and want to keep mm-hmm. um, a, a, a tranquil place for it where, you know, I can cultivate a sense of, you know, whatever the divine expression needs to be through me. And I think that is requires uh, peace and groundedness and one and to allow one's own opinions to grow organically and not have this sort of frantic outreach that we do so often to see what everybody else is talking about and how everybody else thinks. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know what I'm talking about and what I think. One of my uh, most favorite travel authors Pico Iyer you know yes. says yes. very much the same the same thing uh, not wanting he doesn't i think own a cell phone even <laughs> um which is uh, admirable yes in this day and age yes it is and it's more and more important i think that those of us who are representing voices not our own do make sure that we are not out there just selling ourselves but actually figuring out why we're here with this particular vocation Mm. yeah Mm. well thank you so much again for coming on the the podcast thank you so much for having me and for your patience and understanding I hope you enjoyed the interview You can find the episode show notes and much more at alloverthepacepodcast.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com slash alloverthepace. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash allovertheplace. Thanks for your support. Thank you.